As I mentioned, this evening we're starting to look at the book of Mark, Mark's Gospel. We often talk about the four New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But that can be misleading, because there's really only one Gospel. The four Gospels give us four different angles on that one Gospel. So strictly speaking, it's better to talk about the Gospel according to Mark or Matthew, or Luke, or John. And since gospel means good news, we're going to call this series The Good News According to Mark. We're pretty sure that the Mark here is John Mark. He's well known to us if we've read the book of Acts. As a young man, he went on a missionary journey with Barnabas and Paul. But partway through that journey, he bailed out and went back home. He left them in the lurch. And later on, when Barnabas wanted to give John Mark another chance, Paul said, no way. And the result was that Barnabas and Saul went their separate ways. But the story had a good outcome in the end because apparently John Mark matured into a faithful servant of God. So much so that he again became a fellow worker with Paul and also with Peter. And in fact, most scholars think that Mark's gospel is based on Peter's preaching. Peter was Mark's main source when he put his gospel together. If you compare the four gospels, you realize that Mark is the shortest of the four. And when we read it, we realize that Mark writes like he's in a hurry where the other gospel writers like to dwell on each event and give us lots of detail, Mark prefers to deal with things quickly and move on to the next thing. One of the results of that is that Mark focuses more on Jesus' actions than on Jesus' words. He focuses on the messenger more than the message. Now, of course, there are sections of Jesus' teaching here but there are less of them than in the other Gospels. And the reason seems to be Mark wants us to understand the Gospel is not good advice about how to live. The Gospel is good news about a person. That's how Sinclair Ferguson has summed it up, and I think that does sum up what Mark's trying to do. He wants us to see the Gospel is not good advice about how to live. It's good news about a person. And in the very first line of his gospel, Mark makes a bold statement about this person. He tells us Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So no messing around from Mark. This is who Jesus is. And then Mark goes to work backing up that bold statement. He takes us on a top speed tour, mainly of what Jesus did. And as I said, there is teaching too, but the emphasis is very much on Jesus' actions. So Mark says, look at this. Look what he did here. Can he be anyone else except the Messiah, the Son of God? There's one other thing to be aware of before we look at the beginning of this book. Mark seems to have organized his material into two main parts. In the first half of the gospel, 
his focus is mainly on following the disciples as they see Jesus' power and slowly come to realize he's the Messiah. And then, when that penny has dropped, the second half of the book focuses on what kind of Messiah he is. So having got the first point, that he is the Messiah, the disciples are shown Jesus is the Messiah who's going to suffer and die. And they find that fact even harder to grasp than the first one. So broadly speaking, the first half of Mark's book has a big focus on Jesus' power, shown again and again in his miracles. And that leads up to Peter's big statement in chapter 8, verse 29, you are the Messiah. Then, chapter 8, verse 31, tells us, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. That's the focus of the second half of the book. So part one focuses on Jesus the Messiah, and part two focuses on Jesus the suffering Messiah. Now obviously those are not the only things Mark wants us to get. But I think that gives us a handle on his main emphases. What that means is, Mark in his book is presenting us with a paradox. A paradox is a truth that seems to be in conflict with itself. We have an individual with all of the power of Almighty God, who gives himself and dies to save others. Who can explain that? But well, we can't really explain it. But when we realize that it's true, we are led to put our trust in this Messiah. We're led to praise him and give our whole lives over to him. So now let's read the beginning of Mark's Gospel. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. And if you're following in a church Bible, that's page 1002. And in the large print, 1555. So Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This is God's word. I said earlier, Mark makes a bold statement in the very first line of his gospel. Then he spends the rest of the book backing up that statement. And that's true. It's also true, this whole section is an introduction to the book. These verses give us some behind-the-scenes information. And this information will help us make sense of what comes after this passage. Of course, the people who were going to meet in the rest of this book didn't have the information that we are given here. They had to figure it out by watching Jesus and listening to him. But Mark is giving us a head start on everybody else. One writer says, in these opening verses, Mark allows us to see Jesus from God's angle. And Mark chooses to begin in an unusual way. He completely skips over Jesus' birth and his early years. He misses out the stable and the shepherds and the wise men. And he lands us in the wilderness. That's where he chooses to begin his gospel. The wilderness is mentioned four times in this opening section. It's mentioned in the quotation from Isaiah. Then we're told John the Baptist was in the wilderness. Then Jesus was sent by the Spirit out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, a wilderness is not necessarily a desert. It's an uncultivated place. It's not necessarily dead, but it is wild. And here, as well as in the rest of the Bible, the wilderness is a place for new beginnings. It's where people meet with God. And the wilderness is also a place of danger and testing and conflict. We'll notice that as we go along. But first, Mark lays his cards out on the table. In the very first verse, he tells us the truth that he wants to prove to us. The beginning of the good news or the gospel about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And so the good news that Mark has for us is good news about a person. As we've said, it's not a theory about how to live. It's a person to believe in and follow. That's what Christianity is. And then having started with a bang, Mark wants to show that what he's telling us has a history. The good news he has for us has been long expected. Its fulfillment has been long expected. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. 
This quotation is actually a combination of three different verses. And Mark puts them together to show why he's about to move from talking about Jesus to talking about someone else, John the Baptist. Mark is going to introduce us to John because John himself is evidence of who Jesus is. The Old Testament uh, prophets had promised that the Lord was going to come. Again and again, the Lord is coming. And before him, the prophets said, would come a messenger to prepare the way for him. And so, verse 4 says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. John is our first piece of evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John is the messenger who goes before the Messiah. God had promised a new start. He promised to come and make a new beginning. And through John, God begins phase one of that new beginning. And so verses two to eight are about the new start. The new start that God had promised. And it is significant that John does not show up in Jerusalem or in any other city. Look what verse 4 tells us. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. As we go through this book, we'll see that many of the people in Israel were proud. They were very confident about their standing with God. Especially the leaders of the people. They were very confident that Jerusalem was the center of the world. It was the place where one day all the nations would come to worship. But John doesn't go to Jerusalem. If people want to hear John, if they want to be baptized by him, they have to leave the city and come out to the wilderness. What's the message? The message is, if you want to be made ready for the Lord, you have to give up your self-confidence. You have to lay aside your pride in your heritage and your nationality and your famous city. You have to walk away from that. The message is, you'll find God out in the wilderness where there's nothing else for you to depend on or put your faith in. And what was true for these first century Jews is still true for men and women today. If we're going to have a new start, we have to walk away from all the other things that we're depending on and leaning on. I don't mean we have to literally walk out into the middle of nowhere. I mean we have to give up any pride we might have in our background or our good living or even our religious efforts. That's what Jerusalem symbolized for the Jews of this time. And God is saying to them as a people, you won't find a new beginning so long as you keep on feeling superior. 
those of you who were here this morning, it's similar to what we saw this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 22. In that context, those who wanted to join King David, they had to walk away from the security and the comforts of Saul's kingdom. God's Messiah was living in a cave in the wilderness. So back here in Mark, even before these people have heard John's message, they've already taken a big step. They've acknowledged that they can't rely on their holy city. God might be doing something outside those holy walls with all of their great history and heritage. These people have to some degree swallowed their pride even before they got to John. And when they do get to him, they find that he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, John is not the main event in God's program. John is here to prepare the way. He is not able to make people new. He's not able to forgive their sins. But he is preparing the way for the one who can do those things. And he prepares the way by calling people to repentance. And so those who are willing to admit that they're sinners and who want to turn from their sin and be forgiven, those are the people who are going to respond to John. And when the Messiah comes, those same people will recognize him and follow him. Those who turn up their noses at John are going to turn up their noses at the Messiah too. Well, how did people show they were serious about repentance? They got down into the water and they let John baptize them. And when they did, they took another big step towards humbling themselves. If it took humility to leave Jerusalem to meet God out in the wilderness, it took an even bigger step for these people to be baptized. Why? Because that's what Gentiles went through when they became Jews. It was part of the initiation for those who weren't born Jews, but who converted to Judaism. But now John is calling Jews to go through the same ritual. Every Jew who did that was agreeing that being born a Jew was not enough. Even Jews needed to repent and be forgiven. Even Jews needed a new start. Again, what we're seeing is the people who receive God's Messiah are the people who've let go of everything else. They have nothing left to boast in. And so they're ready to boast in Christ alone. And as he did this work, John went to great length to show that he was only the messenger, not the Messiah. He did that in part by dressing like an Old Testament prophet. It was a very distinctive kind of dress. He dressed like a prophet rather than dressing like someone who had the lead role. And John also preached about the greatness of the Messiah. Look at verse 7. 
And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. At this time, unloosing sandals was considered to be a slave's job. When the master was tired after a long walk, it was the slave who bent down and took off his sandals. So look at what John is saying. He's saying, I'm not worthy even to be a slave to the Messiah. He is that much more powerful than me. I would not even qualify for the honor of taking his shoes off. When you and I talk about Jesus, and when we point others to him, isn't it so easy to try and keep just a little glory for ourselves too? Jesus is great. And didn't I do a good job of explaining how great he is? Didn't I preach a great sermon about him? Didn't I play well or sing well on that song about him? Didn't my holy life do a great job of attracting other people to him? John said, I'm not even worthy to be a slave. The privilege of getting down on my knees and untying his dusty sandals That job would be too glorious a privilege for someone like me. And this is not false humility from John. This is a man who knows his place in the grand scheme of things. It is John's greatest glory to point away from himself all the time. To point to the one who has all the power and all of the worthiness. Charles Wesley wrote, This is my work on earth below, to cry, Behold the Lamb. That's what John did. Wesley was quoting from John. John knew he had no power to change anything. He could call people, that's what he's doing. But only God's Messiah could change anyone. And so John says in verse 8, I baptize you with water. It's just a symbol of new life. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He can actually bring about new life. John has done his work, setting the stage for the Messiah. And now we're ready for the Messiah's arrival. And Mark describes not his arrival on earth, not his birth, but his arrival on the public stage. And it's an arrival no one would have been expecting. Verses 7 and 8 have just mentioned a powerful figure who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So it is a major anticlimax when we read then in verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. John is baptizing in the south of Israel. And verse 9 mentions a man from Galilee in the far north. And he's a man from a one-horse town in Galilee. And 
this guy gets in line with all of the sinners and is baptized by John among all the sinners. This is the Messiah, the Son of God? Really, Mark? The one with a greater baptism than John is baptized by John? This is why people in Mark's gospel struggle to accept Jesus. This is why many people today struggle to accept him. This is why Richard Dawkins calls the Jesus of Scripture so petty, so trivial, so local, so earthbound, so unworthy of the universe. He just doesn't seem glorious enough for a lot of people. If he's God, what's he doing standing in a line with sinners? What he's doing is taking the next step in humbling himself for their salvation. The first step was arriving on earth in a stable. Then growing up in Nazareth out in the middle of nowhere. Now he stands in the queue of sinners beside the river. And the final step will be submitting to death on a cross. At each step in his life, Jesus stood in the place of those he came to save. Again and again, in a whole load of different ways, he who had no sin submitted to what sinners deserve. Those who refused to go out to John in the wilderness, those who refused to get in the water and be baptized like Gentiles, they are not going to bow and worship this Savior. Not willingly, anyway. To worship a Savior like this, we have to humble ourselves. We have to admit we're bad enough to need this kind of Savior. We can be glad Jesus identified himself with sinners like us. And we can be even more glad that he is not truly like us. Mark tells us he is the one who pleases God. Verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. We've seen that by being baptized, Jesus entered into fellowship with sinners. But now it's clear that he is set apart from sinners. We can't please God. But Jesus can. He does please God. And he can make us pleasing to God. Way back in the time of Noah, when the world was messed up with sin, God came and wiped it clean. And it was a dove that brought the sign of new life. Remember, Noah sent it out of the ark, 
And we're told it brought back a freshly plucked olive leaf. God would begin again through Noah and his family. And here, as God begins a new work of creation, as he prepares to give men and women new hearts, the Spirit arrives like a dove and comes to rest not on a wooden ark this time, but on Jesus himself. One writer says, it's as though God were saying, Jesus is the one in whom I will begin again. When we're with Jesus, when we're leaning on him and putting all our trust in him, we never need to worry if God is pleased with us. We belong to the one who identified himself with us and took on our humanity and then pleased God in our place. But Mark's introduction doesn't end there. The final verses here show us that Jesus came to do battle. And he came to battle not human powers and authorities, but spiritual forces of evil. Look again at verse 12. At once, it's immediately after the baptism, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. We've seen that the wilderness can be a place of meeting with God. It can also be a hostile place, a place of enemies. In fact, often it's both at the same time. God is with his people as they face enemies in the wilderness. And here we're told Jesus is confronted by Satan in the wilderness. And wild animals are also mentioned. People have wondered, what's the significance here of these wild animals? Well, I think we're to see them as lined up with Satan. Certainly elsewhere in the Bible, in books like Daniel and Revelation, wild beasts are mentioned in that way. They're hostile forces. So the point seems to be Satan is helped by the fact that this world is hostile to God and hostile to God's purposes. And lined up against Satan and all of Satan's allies are Jesus and the angels who attend Jesus. And notice, this conflict in the wilderness is not an accident. Satan didn't pounce on an unsuspecting Jesus. Verse 12 says very clearly, the Spirit sent, literally cast Jesus out into the wilderness. Jesus came to defeat Satan and sin. Jesus' life and ministry were a battle. As certainly we will see, he faced opposition from the Jewish leaders. But here, the very beginning of his gospel, it's as if Mark is pulling back the curtain for us. And he shows us the real conflict. And these 40 days didn't end the conflict. 
These 40 days are just the warm-up. Jesus has come to save sinners. And so he's treading on Satan's toes. These sinners belong to Satan. He's not going to let them go easily. So Jesus' whole ministry is going to be a battle. And as we read Mark's Gospel, we won't often see the real enemy like we do here. But Jesus is going to be battling Satan all the way to the cross. We have a tendency to worry so much about our health and our finances and what our government's getting up to and what that's going to mean for us. We worry about that kind of stuff all the time. But we can be thankful that Jesus has focused on our greatest enemies, sin and death and hell. Sometimes we wonder what Jesus is doing. Why doesn't he sort out our angry boss or our snotty neighbors? Doesn't he care about us? And we forget that he went to battle against the enemy of our souls. We forget that he fought to bring us from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Yes, he cares about us. Mark reminds us of that. At the beginning of his good news, he reminds us that Jesus has identified himself with us. He was baptized with the sinners. He has pleased God for us. And he went out and fought the devil for us. He's the Messiah. The Son of God. And our final song says, I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of man, or why as shepherd he should seek the wanderers. I cannot tell why he would do those things, but he has and he does. We're going to praise him as we sing. I cannot.